Amen. Well, welcome to Two Cities Church. My name is Kyle. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're new, welcome. If you're watching online and it's your first time, welcome. As you can see in this room, it is packed and crowded. We continue. I see in the lobby have people out there. And I say all that because we do have, and if you don't know this, I'm going to tell you this, we have a Sunday night service, okay? It's at five o'clock, okay? And it would be a great opportunity. I, I encourage you. In fact, every sermon is slightly different. So you can actually come back tonight, hear a slightly different sermon, okay? Uh, and, and check out our evening service. We need, we had about, last week, we had about 100 people move to Sunday nights. So thank you. <laughs> Clap for them because you didn't move, I don't think. So you're... you're <laughs> You're right, other people should move to Sunday nights. Um, no, we, we really, if you can do that, if you can do that a couple times a month, listen, this is a stewardship issue, right? We're trying to go, how do we take as many people with us on this journey, and it's packed in here, and it's gonna be more packed next service, and the Sunday night service is packed as well. So happy Memorial Day, okay, happy Memorial Day. Uh, speaking of Memorial Day, right, what does Memorial Day mean to you? I know what it means to you, it means school's out. It means the weather's getting nicer. It means your vacation is starting. It means the pool is open. But Memorial Day, and we, we take a moment every day, every year, to remember Memorial Day. And I always remember two types of people on Memorial Day. First, I remember the missionaries. And I also remember the, sorry, first I remember the military. And then we remember the missionaries. They're very similar. Think about it. What do we do on Memorial Day? We remember the men and women who made the greatest sacrifice and gave their all to secure our physical and political freedom. Thank God. You know, well, I, I am so grateful for that. And then we remember the missionary who also crossed an ocean and also gave their lives for our spiritual and eternal freedom. And, and, and it's like, well, why do, we, why do we talk about this? Why do we take a moment to do this? And let me, and I, you know, we'll see. I wasn't here last week, and so I'm, gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm, gonna, yeah, yeah, I'm excited to be back and I'm excited to say a few things this morning. <laughs> um, and so, uh, well, you know, it's, it's the difference between patriotism, healthy, humble patriotism, which is a love and respect for your country, knowing it's not perfect, but not Christian nationalism, which is my country is my God. Patriotism says, I'm really thankful for my freedoms. I'm really thankful for this nation. I have a dual citizenship. I'm first a member, <laughs> I'm first a citizen of heaven. Secondly, a citizen of the United States of America. Christian nationalism says that my country is my God. The constitution is my Bible. The president is my savior. <laughs> and, uh, and this land is the promised land, which it isn't. But we are incredibly grateful for all of the freedoms that we have and the great price that others have paid for those freedoms. So let's just take a moment because part of what you do, so the difference between patriotism and nationalism, patriotism is you can, be, you can still be prayerful and prophetic in your nation. What, what I mean by that is, what, what I mean, with nationalism, you think, well, my nation is the best and you know, we're the chosen people. And with uh, patriotism, here's what you say, I'm gonna pray for our nation because I'm told to in the scripture because I want to see people come to faith in Christ. And I'm going to be prophetic. That doesn't mean I'm going to tell the future. It means I'm going to speak God's word to my nation. I'm going to call out politicians. And we're going to, we're going to uh, confront the Democrats and the Republicans with what the word of God says. That's what it means to be prayerful, prophetic. That's the type of church that Christ built. That's the type of church that's going to flourish in a divided nation. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful for Memorial Day. Lord, I thank you for the military. Lord, we always will stand behind those who stood before us. Lord, we thank you for the missionaries. We know that every time the gospel goes to a new place, it only goes to a new place through immense suffering. Often through, the first missionaries would often pack their coffins on the boats, knowing they were never coming back. 
knowing that they were going to give their entire lives and most likely die spreading the gospel to a new people, Lord. Lord, may may we always have a healthy sense of patriotism, Lord. Our first allegiance is to heaven and to the kingdom. Lord, but we are thankful to live in a country where at least right now, we have the ability to gather freely to worship. Lord, we don't want to take it for granted. We ask all this in Jesus' name, amen. You can type to, turn to Psalm 16. We're in a series uh, in the the Psalms, and it's four weeks long, and we gave you this book that we're out of them. I got the last one up here right now. You can grab it at the end of the service if you you want it. But uh, here, here, this book that we came alongside, you said, we want to help you pray better. Uh, Here's here's what we think of. We always think of uh, tools, not rules, right? We don't want to give you a bunch of new rules. We want to give you a bunch of tools, right? In fact, all we ever try to do here is connect you to resources and relationships, resources and relationships, resources and relationships. And all the resources point you back to the Bible, and all the relationships are trying to get you connected deeply to meaningful community. Anyway, so so what we're saying in this series is scripture-fed, spirit-led, worship-based prayer. So scripture-fed, what that means is that we want to start everything with the Word of God here, everything. I love what Martin Luther, that famous monk, said. He said, I could not live in paradise without the Word of God. He said, that's how much I love the word of God. I, it wouldn't be paradise if I didn't have the word of God. That's the kind of environment we want to create. We love the word of God. We're uh, scripture fed. We're spirit led. What does it mean to be spirit led? It means that we believe that the Holy Spirit lives inside of every believer. We believe that the, the Holy Spirit, he wrote scripture. So he inspired it and the Holy Spirit illuminates scripture. So when we read it, so what we want to do is we want to go to the word of God. We want to see it. We want to say, God, would you speak to me and let me speak back to you? That's the prayers and it's worship based. And what we're going to see today in Psalm 16 is passionate worship, which is what I want to see in our lives, which is what I want to see in our church, what we want our church to be. Here's here's what it is. You can write this down. If you came back in 100 years, this is what we're going to be doing. We're going to be making disciples, mobilizing them for mission, and doing it in an environment of worship and prayer. That's it. It's like, what are we doing every Sunday? We're making disciples. We're mobilizing them for mission. Everything's in an environment of uh, worship and prayer. What is the kids' ministry? What's happening next door? We're making disciples. We want to mobilize them for mission as they get older. We want to do all of that in an environment of prayer and worship. When we talk about worship, you know, sometimes some of you think, I love it that I'm a Christian because I worship. I wish other people worshiped. No, everybody worships. Everybody worships all the time. There's two lies we believe about worship. Christians worship and everybody else doesn't. No, no, no. The guy at the strip club is worshiping. The guy looking at pornography is worshiping. The guy who is on the golf course constantly is worshiping. It's all about what what am I sacrificing for? What's in my uh, first of my thoughts? What's my priority? Everybody ties. Did you know that? Everybody ties. Everybody ties to what they worship. Some people tie to the country club. Some people tie to their vacations. Some people tie to their hobbies and habits. Everybody gives 10% to what they worship. And so this this is a passionate idea about worship. And we worship God simply because he is worthy. Another, Another lie that we believe about worship is that worship stops and worship starts. I start worshiping, I stop worshiping. We'll sing a few songs, we're done worshiping. No, everybody is always continuously worshiping. That's what it means to be made in God's image. I want to worship. The question is, what am I going to worship? And I want to read to you Psalm 16. This is David at a young age. He's a brand new king. We don't know the exact dates. This is King David at the beginning of his reign going through some type of trouble. In fact, look at Psalm 16. You'll see it says a mictum. Uh, do you see that kind of little subscript it should be at the top of Psalm 16 for you? That's, um, that that may, basically means a prayer in time of trouble. Do we know what he was going through? We don't know. The, that the mictum is only used six times in the Psalms. But he, he's, he's got this prayer in a deep time of difficulty as a young man. 
I'm going to read this entire psalm to us, and then we're going to unpack it. If you look at me at um, chapter 16, verses 1 through 11. Here's what it says. Uh, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. That's his request. And then look, look at the confident worship in the psalm. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord, and I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, that would be the Christians, they are the excellent ones in whom, all, in whom is all my delight. Verse four, the sorrows of those who run after another God, they will multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion in my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel in the night and also instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he's at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, that's the grave, or let your Holy One see corruption. And then a confident ending in verse 11. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. Let's look back just at verse one. We're gonna talk about verse one for a while here. Here's what he says. Preserve me. What does that mean? That means keep me faithful, Lord. That means, Lord, keep me believing. That means, Lord, keep me trusting. He says, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. It's interesting. He says a couple things here. Uh, the first thing he says is, is preserve me. He, he doesn't pray for an easy life. Actually, I don't even think that's what you want. You may think that. You may think, I want an easy life. No, you don't. You would be bored with that. What you want is a life of meaning. You want a life of adventure. You want a life of mission. And you want to do it with people that you love. That's really what we want at the end of the day. And so he says, hey, I want you to preserve me. It's like, well, why would you pray a prayer to be preserved? Here's the reason, because life is very, very hard. You know this. And, and this is a very, as we head into the summer, and I, I don't know, I'm not a prophet, right? But I don't know what's ahead for you, but it's like, look, we have a large church. Are all of you, are all of us going to have a great year in 2021? No. No, definitely not. Are all of us going to have a great decade? No, definitely not. I, I'm grateful that in the life of our church, there have only, we're five years old, there have only been two funerals. But that is very unique, and that's because we're very young. But I will tell you, almost all of the funerals are incredibly tragic because we're so young. And what you pray, what we should pray, and David started praying it as a young man, and you young men and you young women, you need to start praying this now. It's, Lord, preserve me. You know, John Piper, he's in his 70s. If you don't know who he is, he pastored one of the most influential churches in our nation for, for decades. And he said, he said, I pray, I heard him say this. He said, I pray two things every day. He said, one, I say, Lord, please keep me a Christian. He said, I get on my knees and I pray that every day. Lord, would you please keep me believing? You know, you hear these, these stories of pastors and Christians and a guy from DC Talk and Josh Harris and all these other guys who are deconstructing their faith. It's like, Lord, please preserve me. Keep me believing. The second thing is this. He says this, keep me married. He said, he said, I get on my knees and I pray, for the, I pray for worship and my wedding vows. 
I pray that I will continue to stay strong in the Lord. Why? Because life is so hard. Listen, you have an eternal, internal enemy, an external enemy, and a spiritual enemy. Just think about this. You have a external enemy. We call it the world. Now, when I say the world, I don't mean the people of the world. We love the people of the world. We love them all. We want them to believe in Jesus and trust and repent and have eternal life. We love everybody in Winston-Salem. We love every man, woman, and child. So what does it mean when we say, what, what does it mean when we say, when we're told in the Bible to hate the world? Or is it hate the value system of the world? But it's going to constantly tempt us. And there's new temptations. And here's how it works. So you've got the world and then you've got your flesh, right? And your flesh, so you've got an external enemy, which is the world. You have an internal enemy, which is your flesh. And it's like, you've got to deal with you. And your flesh is going to be different than my. Our flesh is all the same at one level. What I mean by that is like, we're all going to struggle with being sinful and broken and fallen. But you're going to have unique temptations. And so you've got an external enemy of the world. You've got an internal enemy of your flesh. And then you have a spiritual enemy of the devil. Yes, we, Christianity is a supernatural faith. There is a seen realm, which is what you can see right now. There is an unseen realm. Heaven, hell, angels, demons. And you have, and this is good to know, and, and, and the Bible's full of this. I believe Satan is mentioned in every New Testament book. That we have an, a spiritual enemy who wants to tempt us and an intelligent enemy who wants to do us evil. And so what you want to pray is, Lord, I want you to preserve me. I don't know what's going to happen to my kids, Lord. Preserve me. I don't know what's going to, I don't know how difficult my marriage is going to be. Would you preserve me? I don't know how, how successful I'm going to be or how much I'm going to fail. And people will argue, sometimes, it, sometimes it's more difficult to deal with success in your life and be preserved than it is to deal with failure. Because failure might push you back to the Lord and say, Lord, I need you. I, I want you to help me. We don't know what's going to happen. We don't know who's going to betray us. We don't know what's going to happen to us financially. And so we pray, God, would you please preserve me? Now, let me tell you how this works. God preserves and you persevere. That's what the Bible teaches. And they're taught right next to each other in scripture. Charles Spurgeon, he was once asked, how do you reconcile God's sovereignty and man's responsibility? He goes, I never reconcile friends. They're friends. They're taught right next to each other in scripture. So preservation is what God says he's going to do. When Jesus says, you're in my hand, no one will take you from me, that would be preservation. When, when Philippians 1, 6 says, the work God started in you, he's definitely going to complete it. It's like, well, great. Sounds like I don't have to do anything. That's preservation. Perseverance is the entire book of Hebrews. <laughs> Read Hebrews. You're like, why? I, this is a scary book. There's a lot of warning passages. There's a lot, I better do this or else. It's like, well, that's Perseverance. Why does Jesus say, he who endures to the end will be saved? Put your hand to the plow and don't look back. That's all perseverance. And then there's, there's a third thing. There's pr preservation, God's work. There's perseverance, your work. And there's assurance, which is how you feel when those things are happening. And one of the greatest things, you, you cannot lose your salvation, but you can lose your assurance of salvation. And that happens to people all the time. I, I've had it, I, it, it has happened several times. Someone comes back to our church. It's not about leaving our church, but they left our church. They, they moved away. They, get, they, they fell in or jumped into some type of sin. And I remember this. I remember a young man coming back and he's wondering if he needs to get baptized again because of what he's been doing for the last six months. And we had to walk through it and talk through it. It's like, listen, man, it's like what has happened in your life is, you know, we can have, we can have difficult moments. Christians can, can get addicted to different sins and struggles. 
And what happens in that moment is you start going, and this is why you have to deal with secret sin. Because nothing will chip away at your assurance of salvation like a little porn addiction. You know what I'm saying? You're, you're, you know, all of these different things in your life. So you've got to say, okay, look, okay, I, I, wanna ha- I, can, I can't lose my salvation. I can lose my assurance of salvation by living contrary to what scripture teaches. Now, here's the thing David prays. He says, Lord, preserve me. Now, this is such interesting. I had this thought this week. He's asking God, preserve the preservative. Because the cr- Christians are salt. Isn't that interesting? Lord, would you please preserve the preservative? I mean, that's all the church is. The church is salt. We learn about that in the Sermon on the Mount. What does that mean? We are that which preserves the world. We are that which gives the world flavor. And what he's saying is, look, it's not that the church is that great. It's that, here's what it is. It's not that the church is that great. It's that what we hold is the gospel. We hold the, we're the only organization on earth that has the gospel. We're the only organization on earth that has the good news of how God saves sinners through Jesus Christ. And so, listen, when you pray, Lord, would you preserve me? It's a missional prayer. It's not just, Lord, preserve me so my life's easy and I, I can get through my trials and troubles and tribulations. It's, Lord, would you please preserve me because I believe that you have a mission in the world for me. Which is, I just want to encourage us, you know, and I thought about this for a while this week. It's like, you know, how dark is the world right now compared to past generations? I don't know, right? I think every generation feels like it's darkest in their moment, right? It's like we've got, you know, all of the sexual LGBTQ alphabet soup kind of like agenda. It's an agenda. And we love those people. We love them. And we're going to, we think everyone's a sexual sinner and everybody needs to repent. We, we, We have a divided nation, we have ideology. See, the Bible says you can be possessed by demons and possessed by ideology. That's called the doctrine of demons. That's what it's called. So you have, you, I believe there's ideological possession. I, I, I believe we are becoming more and more a minority in the culture, okay? When they're arresting pastors in Canada, it scares me. I don't know if it scares you guys. <laughs> scares, I mean, that's America's hat, okay? It's right above us. Very similar, right? I don't like to see pastors in Canada getting arrested. Um, and it's like, I say all that to say, this is, what, this is what we were meant for though, guys. This is it. I'm speaking, not everyone here is a Christian. Not everyone's watching here is a Christian. If you're a Christian, this is it. This is what the church is meant for. This is where the church flourishes. When things get darker, people want to go deeper. When, when everything is, you know, when everybody is afraid right? The, the religion in America right now is safetyism. I have to be safe at all times. Nothing can ever hurt me. I don't want to face the facts that I'm not in control and I'm going to die. And it's like, this is, this is where the church can be the brightest. And so he says, would you please preserve me? Now, the only way you can be preserved, look where you have to be. Look at verse one where he says, this is right. This is why we just, we're, we're saturating scripture. Preserve me, O God. Why? Because in you, I take refuge. God is not going, you're not going to be preserved in any kind of meaningful way to be influential and missional in the world if you find your refuge in what everybody else finds the refuge in, right? It's like, Lord, okay, we can't go to the same places everybody else does for relief and escape. That, that, so when you read refuge, think about that. That's what it means. It means relief and escape. Where do people go? You know where people go. People go to other people, right? 
It's like so the codependent person, the peer pressure person, the girl who's always in an unhealthy relationship, she has a refuge problem. That's what it is. Some people go to pleasure. Why do people drink too much? We know it softens the world. That's it. That's why people drink too much because it helps them deal with all their anxiety. That's what it is. Why do people amuse themselves so much? We know they don't wanna think about meaningful things. Life's too hard. Why do people sleep all the time? Like sleep too much. Like sleep in and go to bed early and take all these naps. It's too painful to be conscious. This is it. And so he's saying, look, in you I take refuge, God. And then I want you to see what he says in verse two. He goes on and says this, verse two. He says, I say to the Lord, I love this. This is confident, confessional, convictional Christianity, which is what we need. This is what I'm praying for, for our church and for you guys, that you would have a confident, convictional, confessional Christianity. I say to the Lord, I say it out loud because I need to hear it. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I love that. You are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. This is so important. What Christianity is, and we live in a confused culture where people are Christians. Well, not anymore because we're becoming more of a minority and everything I just said earlier. But we, um, we live in a culture where most people have been Christians by convenience. I'm a Christian because, I don't know, I live in America and my parents went to church and my grandparents went to church. And so I'm a, I'm a Christian by convenience. The Bible talks about being a Christian by conviction. And by confession. See, what, what the church does, this is why anybody who joins our church as a member uh, agrees to our confession of faith. That's what Christianity is. It's this is what I believe, and it's actually changing and transforming my life. And he has one major statement. You're awesome, God. I said to the Lord, you're my Lord. In other words, Lord, it's actually great to have a Lord. Everybody's gonna have a Lord. Everybody's gonna have a master. Everybody's gonna submit to somebody right? For some of you, you're your own master, right? But it's like, what, what does it mean to say, Lord, you are my Lord, and apart from you, I have no good? This is, the first, um, this is the first lie that is told in the garden. The first lie that Adam and Eve believe in the garden is that God is not good. I, you have to understand this. That's the foundational lie that is, rooted, that, that is under all of our sinning, all of our unbelief, all of our questioning of God's word is, God, okay, uh, you're Lord, but I don't know if you're good. Right, because what, what does Satan say in the garden? Did God really say? So he questions God's word, and then he says, actually, no, God knows that when you eat it, you'll be like him, knowing good and evil. In other words, God is withholding good from you. And that's a common temptation that Christians can believe. You know, the, 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 and I know I'm talking about sex a lot, but it's like the, 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 the Christian sexual ethic. If you tell the average person the Christian, Christian sexual ethic, they'll probably think something like this, boring. Sounds like God is withholding good from you. You, you. you talk about the idea of marriage, commitment, covenant. That sounds boring. Sounds like God's withholding good from you. What he does here is he speaks a truth. And we don't know for sure you know, how he says this exactly, but he basically needs to remind himself of the truth. This is, this is a key um, principle in being a Christian is we can't just listen to ourselves. We have to speak to ourselves. You know that, right? It's like, it's an interesting thought. I mean, I don't know if you've ever asked yourself this before, but where do your thoughts come from? We don't know. 
I mean, we literally don't know. I mean, there, there's no sign. Where do your thoughts, they, they come up from somewhere. It's like, we don't assume all of your thoughts are good. And, but think about how much time you spend listening to yourself and not speaking to yourself, right? You wake up in the morning, what happens? You're like, go back to bed. It's like, who said that? <laughs> you did, right? How much time, right? And for some of you, it's certain, it's certain times of the day that you listen to yourself. When you're alone, you listen to yourself. You know, some, some of you, it's in the morning. Some of you, it's late at night. Some of you, it's about certain topics that you just listen to yourself. And again, in some of you, and, I've heard, and I think some of it's demonic because if you ever hear yourself saying things to you in like the third person, you are a terrible person. You are nothing. God doesn't love you. That's demonic. And what we have to do is no longer listen to ourselves, but we need to speak the word of God. The Christian's job is to think God's thoughts after him. That's, that's literally what, that's why it's like, all right, Lord, I'm going, to, I'm going to believe the truth in this situation. I'm actually gonna, when it comes to, okay, I'm bitter at, you know, my friend. You know what I'm gonna do? And it feels good to be bitter. And it feels good to think about all the dumb things they've done. That's why you, I mean, no one sins out of duty. You sin out of delight, and, right? It's like, oh, that's fun. It's like, well, actually what I'm gonna do instead is I'm gonna tell myself the truth. God's my Lord. I'm gonna forgive because there's no good apart from him. And I believe that what God has said is best. So I'm gonna stop listening to myself and I'm going to start speaking to myself in this area. Look at verse three. So first he says, you know, I love the Lord. Second, he says this, verse three, as for the saints, right? And some of you, when you think of saints, you think of dead people <laughs> um, or you think of, you know, sporting teams. It's like, uh, no, the, the saints are believers, Saints are, we are saints because of what Christ has done. Here's what he says. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. I, I love this. It's like, how are we going to persevere? And how is God going to preserve us? Number one is a deep commitment to the Lord. He says, I love you, Lord. I've got no good apart from you. I'm gonna stop listening to myself, start speaking to myself. The second thing is a deep love for the church. Do you see that? It's very popular nowadays to like go, I love Jesus and I don't like the church, right? That's really cool. That's really millennial. That's really hipster, right? To say, I love Jesus and I can't stand the church. It's like saying, <laughs> you know, I like Jesus, but I don't like his bride. You know, and how that, you know, how's it going to go, men, for you if, if someone came up to you and said, look, you're awesome. I can't stand your wife. <laughs> it's like, I don't know that we could be friends. I'm married to her, Right? <laughs> I love her with all my heart. I made lifelong commitments to her. This is what it means. It's like, all right, and I love it. He says, I mean, if you just read the verse, he's so positive about the church. Three different things. As for the saints, they are the excellent ones in whom is all of my delight. You can tell a lot about a person by the people they hang out with, right? I've heard it said that you can tell a man's enemies by his virtues and his vices by his friends. And what we see here is David has a deep love. And this is, let me just say, this is what happens. And, and if you're not a Christian, I want you to understand this. Or if you're a Christian, I want you to understand what's happening to you. When you become a believer, you get an entire new nature. You're not made nice, you get an entire new nature. You get, I talk about this all the time because Christianity is supernatural. The Holy Spirit comes and lives inside of you and changes and transforms your entire heart and at the deepest level gives you new hates and new loves. 
You love what God loves for the reasons God loves it. You hate what God hates for the reasons God hates it. And one of the things that you begin to love is Christians. You just love them. I remember I was a brand new believer. I, you know, I was never the coolest kid in school, but I hung out with more of the, you know, the popular crowd. And I, and I, and I, and I had all these friends and I, had a, and I just remember I came to Christ and I was like, I've got, I've got to have some new friendships. I want to win these people to Christ. I want to pray for them. I want to evangelize my friends, but I need some people who believe and love the same things as I do. And so what he talks about here is a love for the church. Now, a couple things. Some people may go, well, I don't really like Christians. Well, if you don't like Christians, there's, there's, there's usually two options. Number one, you may not be a Christian. Because what, what God does in a person's heart, like I just told you, is if you genuinely love the Lord, you're going to be made spiritually alive, and you're going to want to be with other Christians. My other question is, if you don't love Christians, have you ever really met one? Have you met a real, I mean, I, lo I love Christians. They, they're sacrificial, genuine Christian. They're servant-hearted. They're generous. They're humble. They're hospitable. They worship the Lord. They, they know what they've been saved from. And all of that should change and transform heart. Now listen, you have the right expectations. The church isn't perfect, right? The church is a hospital. We're all sick. <laughs> we're all sinners. We're all, we, you know, we should always be humble hypocrites. It's like we're trying. We're trying to live this out. We're hypocrites. We're, we're trying to do it humbly. When we do fall and fail, you know, we, we try to confess it. We try to repent, but we're doing it together. David's whole thing is I can't be preserved if I don't have the church. But then he doesn't just think about the church. It's very important. He loves the church. But look what he says next, verse four. He says this, the sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. So he's thinking about the, the church and then the world, the believer and then the unbeliever. Look what he says here. And their drink offerings of blood, I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. It's, it's hard to tell sometimes when you read the Old Testament. And by the way, the Old Testament, you're always looking through a mirror dimly. They, they, they didn't have the full revelation of scripture like we do. But you read, you read a verse like that and you go, it's hard to tell what is David's heart toward the lost there. He's certainly seeing them rightly. He's seeing that those who run after other gods, it says, it says that they have many sorrows. That a good way to think about it is the more gods you have, the more grief you have in your life. And that he's talking about idolatry here. Now, what we know is that if we get to the New Testament, we see Jesus Christ has a massive heart for lost people. Remember, he goes up and he, he looks over Jerusalem and he weeps over Jerusalem for their unbelief. That's a heart for lost people. How about the Apostle Paul? The Apostle Paul, he's writing, I think it's in Philippians. And he says, I tell you about some people. He says, their God is their belly. Their glory is their shame. And then he says, I say these things with tears. What we wanna see in our church because we believe this is what every Christian has, is a deep love for the church and a deep love for the lost. What would it look like for you to pray for one lost person by name every day? Just one. One person who's far from God, close to you. I'm trying to make this a regular part of my devotional life. I go, read my Bible, pray. One of the things I'm gonna pray for is I'm gonna pray for one lost person by name. You know, the closest point between two people is prayer. So you could, you could go, I'm gonna pray. I'm gonna pray for my son, right? Some of us, we got young kids. We gotta remember all of our kids are lost. A lot of us with our very long, the young believing kid, or unbelieving kids in our home. We want them to believe. We want them to grow up and love the church. 
And then he sees, but here's what happens. I think the reason he prays for the lost is he sees them rightly. Right? A lot of times we don't pray for the lost because we're envious of them. We're jealous of them. I've told you before about my time at Duke and how much I struggled there. I'd be doing ministry, and I'm like, I would be doing ministry, I'm like, you're 10 years younger than me, and I'm jealous of your life. And, and I can't, but if I'm jealous of you or I need something from you, I can't call you to repentance. I can't say the Lord is my Lord and I have no good apart from him. See, the way that you have compassion on people is you see all sin as both rebellion and enslavement. This is a huge principle in life, right? When you sin, what do you think it is? You're enslaved, right? Whenever you sin, you're like, I couldn't help it. I just had to. I fell into sin. I'm struggling. It's hard, right? That's what happens when you sin. What happens when other people sin? Rebellion, <laughs> right? How could they? They should know better. There's no excuse. They did that on purpose. They don't care. And he just has this huge heart. He says, look, they have many sorrows because they run after, it says their sorrows will be multiplied. Multiplied in this, in this world, but multiplied in the world to come. We actually believe in hell. I only talk about it as much as it comes up in the scriptures. But the multiplying of sorrows is clearly talking about hell. There's sorrow in this life and there's sorrow in the life to come. So David says, would you preserve me? I'm gonna do two things, three things. I'm gonna love you, Lord. I'm gonna love the church. I'm going to love the lost. And then I want you to see in verse five and six, what he's gonna say is, and I'm gonna love the life you gave me. What would that look like for you? If you love the Lord, love the church, love the lost, and love the life God gave you. Look at verse five and six. He loves his life. The Lord is my chosen portion. And he's my cup and he's my lot. That's all Old Testament language. When, when they would divide out the land in the book of um, Leviticus, this is, what they, this is the language that they would use. He says, the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup and my lot and the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Now, this is interesting. Did, did this is why it's helpful to know context. David was the youngest son of Jesse. The way that it, when you are the youngest son in a family, or you're, when, whenever you're not the firstborn son in the family, do you get any inheritance? No. Back then, it was, had, had to do with passing on the family line. It had to do with keeping property. It had to do with a lot of different things. But basically, the firstborn son, some of us in here are firstborn sons, uh, the firstborn son got everything. And it was up to him whether or not he was gonna share some more and, and how he's gonna protect the family. But, but every other son and all the daughters got nothing. So what's interesting is, what does David mean here? He has no inheritance from his family. He's thinking about things spiritually. We actually know nothing. David appeals to nothing about his current temporal circumstances in saying these things. He says this, the Lord is my chosen portion. He's my cup. He's my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. What he's not doing is he's not comparing his life to everybody else's life. He's not comparing, he's not on social media, right? He's not constantly seeing, this is, this is here, this is gonna be a new thing for Americans. This is the language of contentment. Lord, I'm content. What else, if you understand things, and we say this all the time because we need to be reminded, it's like, he said, the Lord is my cup and my portion and my lot. In other words, he's like, look, my sins are forgiven. I, I no longer am under the wrath of God. I'm no longer headed to hell. I'm no longer without God and without hope in the world. It's hard to be content in America, right? Every advertisement, every sponsored ad is to get you to be discontent with what you have and with what God's given you. 
I was gone last week, and while I was, at, while I was gone, I uh, got a rental car. And I don't know how this happened. It worked out. They upgraded me. So I, I, I was in this really nice rental car. I mean, the, I've never been in a car like this. It had air conditioning in the seats. <laughs> and, and, I, and, I, and I got back, and I was like, I got back in my car, when I, when I, my regular car afterwards, and I was like, this thing is terrible. <laughs> and, and I've always loved my car. And it was like, and I was driving on the highway, and the wheel started shaking a little bit. I'm like, the, the, you know, like just a little, ever so slightly shaking. I'm like, my rental car wheel never shakes, you know? <laughs> how easy it is just to, to lose our place of contentment. And, and he says, Lord, the Lord is my portion. And then look what he says next. He, he, uh, verse seven, he says this, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. He's going to make some daily decisions. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel in the night. And also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he's at my right hand. I will not be shaken. I want you to see two things there. Um, he says, I'm going to bless the Lord and I'm going to set the Lord in front of me. What does it mean to bless the Lord, right? We, we talk about this word bless is showing up a lot. It showed up in, in, in the Sermon on the Mount. It shows up, it showed up in Psalm 1. Normally, 90% of the time, the Bible talks about God blessing us. What does it mean when it turns around and says, I'm going to bless the Lord? Hey, here's what it means. I'm going to publicly celebrate him. That's what blessing means. Right? If we say, hey, say a blessing at dinner, we're like, hey, what you do is just publicly honor the Lord and thank him for these gifts. That's what, it, that's what we say, say a blessing. So what does it mean to bless the Lord? I'm going to be, and we talk about this all the time, I'm going to be a public Christian. Being a Christian, and let me tell you what I've learned. It needs to now be, it needs to be the first thing people find out about me. I need, the, the earlier in a relationship I can identify publicly with Christ, the easier it is. If I try to sneak it in later, which is... People find out pretty easily because one of the first questions is, what do you do for a living, you know? And I try to give a cool answer, spiritual leadership. No, no, it's like, I'm a pastor, you know? It's like, um, so, but it's like, the closer we identify with Christ, we want to, now, listen, I mean, just to use a cultural thing, it's like, why are the Christians the last ones to come out of the closet? Why is it okay for everybody else to come out of the closet? Why is it okay for everybody else to be bold about their identity? Right? It's like, I think the Christian needs to, I mean, it's, take this, I may never use this illustration again, but the Christian may need to come out of the closet in the sense of, hey, listen, I, here's what it means. I'm publicly identifying with Jesus Christ, that my faith is incredibly personal, but never private. It's a public faith. And what we need, and what, what changes a city, I've seen this, are, are Christians who are highly relational and explicitly Christian, both. I'm not weird. I'm highly relational, explicitly following Jesus Christ. You're going to hear about it often. You're going to hear about it early, hopefully not in weird ways, hopefully in, in compelling ways because no one else has ever talked to you about their faith in Christ. Everybody has their little quiet time in the morning and then compartmentalizes that part of their life and goes and lives their day. And it ends up being the last thing we find out. The second thing he says, I'm gonna set the Lord before me and I won't be shaken. Setting the Lord before you is, is, is priority. That's what that means. Uh, he's gonna be number one in my life. And, and this is interesting. If the Lord's number one, you won't be shaken. If anything else is number one, you'll be shaken, right? It's like, well, health is number one. Well, you're going to get old. That's what happens. So you're gonna, illness and injury will come to you. Okay, well, uh, you know, finances are gonna be number one. Well, the stock market's going up and down and you lost your job, now you're shaken, you know? Marriage will be number one. Well, you're still single, so now you're shaken. We have to say, I'm gonna set the Lord because he can't change, I'm gonna be okay. And then verses nine to 11 are this incredible ending 
Look what he says, therefore, in light of all this, because I love God, it's very simple. I love God, I love the church, I love the lost, I'm glad about the life God's given me, and I'm publicly identifying with Jesus Christ. He says this, therefore, my heart is glad. That's what we need. We need joyful, hopeful, faithful Christians. That's what your workplace needs. That's what your neighbors need. That's what your coworkers and classmates need. That's what your family and friends need. He says there, my heart is glad, my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. I wanna look first at verse 11. He says, you made known to me the path of life. Listen, we know the path is now a person. Jesus Christ says, I am the way. We know that life is a path, right? You're headed somewhere. Most of us are not headed anywhere on purpose. <laughs> but you're headed somewhere. There is a direction to your life. You are making progress. What, we're, what we find out in the New Testament is Jesus Christ comes along and he says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. The path is a person. But then he says this. He says, at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Christians need to have a comprehensive understanding of pleasure. Do you know that pleasure was God's idea? Don't ever be embarrassed to talk about pleasure. Like I think, you know, he says, he says there's quantity and quality of pleasure. There's pleasure forevermore. You know the Mormons tell you that you get your own planet? That's what they tell you. You get your own planet, that you get the pot, you become a god. Do you know what the, the Muslims say? You get 70 virgins when you die. Do you know what most Christians think? You're in a diaper with a harp on a cloud. <laughs> Those are the three things I've been praying against my whole life, Okay. That, but we have, we have no big view of heaven. He says, ple so, so ple listen, pleasure was God's idea. Listen, God could have made babies any way he wanted. Think about that for a while. God could have decided to create reproduction. And he's God any way he wanted. He made it pleasurable. God could have given us nutrients and sustenance and strength any way he wanted. But he gave us steak. Right? I mean, you know, amen. I hear that amen. Um, you know, God, God could have given us a world that was highly functional, but not beautiful and not enjoyable. And see, it's interesting. My daughter, Addie, um, she's nine. She, she, recently, we've been talking about idolatry. And she came up to me and, and uh, she does this a couple times a day now. She says, dad, it doesn't even matter what it is. She says, dad, I think ice cream's an idol for me. I'm like, me too. I mean, you know, <laughs> you start being convicted. You're like, yeah, Bluebell, of course. Um, and, uh, you know, and she, said, and she says, well, because I enjoy eating ice cream more than I enjoy reading my Bible. And I'm like, me too. You know, <laughs> sometimes, you know. And, and so, and, and, I mean, there is just, I mean, like I'm talking three, four, five times a day. Something comes up. This is an idol. And we had this conversation and said, okay, well, part of the way that we fight this is we don't just say we're not eating any ice cream ever again, or we're not watching any TV ever again, or we're not riding our bike ever again, and all these different things. They're all, they, by the way, they're all good things. It's like what you have to start doing is saying, Lord, I'm thankful for you for this gift. Lord, thanks for ice cream. I, I don't want to abuse it. I don't want to become gluttonous with it, but man, thank you for making food so incredible. And thanks that, that heaven is going to start with a wedding feast. So we just have to have a better idea of pleasure. We, the idea of heaven for us is, man, we are going to have pleasure forever with God. 
the reason that as you get older, the reason the, and it becomes more, more important uh, as you get older, you realize the Bible talks about getting a new body. Why do we get a new body? Because to know God fully, we're going to need to have a new body. We're going to need to have, be able to fully enjoy him for all that he is. It's interesting. He says here, I want you to see what he says here, um, with the resurrection. Look, look at this. This is one of the clearest passages in scripture about the resurrection. Verse nine, therefore my heart is glad, my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your holy one see corruption. This is the language of resurrection. Um, the Jews believed of a, in a resurrection at the end of time of all people. It's clearly taught in the Old Testament, several places. That all people at the end of time will rise, some to eternal life and some to eternal damnation. Everybody lives forever. The question is just where? What makes Jesus unique and what surprised everybody, because all the Jews believed, okay, great. At the end of time, everybody rises from the dead. Jesus says, actually, there's gonna be one person in the middle of time who will rise from the dead. And that will completely transform everything and everyone. When Jesus Christ comes into the world, he lives a perfect life so that we can be called saints and we can be called excellent ones. He dies in our place for our sins, takes our penalty and our punishment so that we can find refuge in him. He rises from the dead and he gives us his Holy Spirit. This is why, see, David prayed this prayer probably somewhere in his 20s. He had no idea how much he was going to need this prayer to be answered his whole life. Do you understand? He prayed in his 20s, preserve me. He had no idea he was going to sleep with Bathsheba. He had no idea he was going to kill Uriah. He had no idea that he was going to be a terrible dad. David's one of the worst dads in scripture. And he prays as a young man, Lord, would you preserve me? Would you preserve me from all of the difficulties, uh, through all of the difficulties in my life, through all of the trials in my life? Charles Spurgeon was overwhelmed when he read this passage about preserving. And he wrote a prayer that I'm going to close with and read us. This is the prayer that Spurgeon prayed about asking God to preserve him. I'm going to read this, and then we're just going to pray together that God preserves us as a church and you guys individually as families, preserves us for the sake of mission in the world. Let me read this. This is what Charles Spurgeon, a pastor in the 1800s, wrote. He said this, Preserve me from the world. Let me not be carried away with its excitements. Preserve me from the devil. Let him not tempt me above what I'm able to bear. Preserve me from myself. Keep me from growing envious, selfish, high-minded, proud, and slothful. Preserve me from those evils into which I see others run. And preserve me from those evils into which I am myself most apt to run. Keep me from evils known and from evils unknown. Let's pray. Lord, I wanna pray right now for every person listening in here and online. Lord, I just pray verse one over this, us. Lord, would you preserve us? We know that the answer is you preserve us in Christ. David said, you are my cup and you are my portion. We know that the Bible says Jesus Christ had no portion in this life. At the cross, even his garments were taken from him. Lord, would you help us to take refuge in you, Lord? I pray right now we would just take a moment and confess right now in our hearts, where are we prone to take refuge? Where are we prone to run and where are we prone to escape to, Lord? Would you give us grace? 
Lord, I pray over our church that we would love you, Lord. We would say, you are our Lord and I have no good apart from you. Lord, I pray that we would love the church. We would love Christians. We would speak highly of the church. Lord, and I pray that we would love the lost and we would look toward heaven. We pray all this in Jesus' name.